find a copy of God's Word. And if you'll turn uh, to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, you'll find the account of the triumphant entry, the triumphal entry in all four Gospels. And I encourage you perhaps this afternoon to, to read through the other three. Each gospel gives us a little bit different perspective. And this morning, we want to look at the account from uh, Luke. Before we do, let's go to the Lord and ask for His help. So, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this text this morning in which we read of Jesus' triumphal entry. We pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us anointing, Father, both to the preacher and the hearer alike. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Luke 19, verse 28 and following. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, On which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away uh, went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks in the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Well, things had finally begun to come to a head. For three years now, Jesus has been traveling around places like Galilee and Samaria, Judea, the Decapolis, and Perea, proclaiming the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. Indeed, he was bringing it. He was inaugurating it. And he had attracted quite a following. He hadn't gone unnoticed. When you bring people back to life, when those who have never seen before suddenly see, when those who have been lame and crippled, when those who had an issue of blood for years and years, when suddenly they are healed, it's hard to keep that quiet. Even when you tell them, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine if your daughter had been raised from the dead and Jesus said, don't say anything about it? That'd be a tough one, wouldn't it? The Lord had begun to attract crowds. It was a mixed crowd. There was a crowd full of different kinds of people expecting different things, viewing Jesus through different worldviews, and they all had their opinion of Jesus. Some really liked him, and some because they believed he was the Messiah, and others just because they wanted some bread. Others opposed him. The religious elite, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Indeed, they wanted to kill him and were looking for an opportunity. They were directly opposed to him because he loved the sinner. A sinner like Zacchaeus, whom we looked at Wednesday night. 
They didn't like the fact that Jesus was condemning them, that his strongest words were held for those who were in religious authority and who were the blind ones leading Israel down the wrong road. Through all of this, Jesus has been in charge of the timetable. Indeed, as we gather this week for the Holy Week services, keep this in mind that Jesus is always in charge of the timing. But the fullness of time had now come. It wasn't in John 6 when the crowds were ready to make him king. He wasn't ready for that. And he certainly wasn't the kind of king they anticipated. The Pharisees had been trying to kill him. Indeed, his own hometown sought to throw him off a cliff. But it wasn't time for that. Some were trying to crown him and others were trying to kill him. And at the end of this week, both will happen. Indeed, he will be crowned king as he is killed. But this morning, we look at the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday. The king has finally arrived. The king we need. And when he does, not everybody is excited to see him. There's a shift way back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We read this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's a shift here in Jesus' ministry. He is, he is bringing his ministry, his earthly ministry, to a conclusion, and he begins a long trek back to Jerusalem, heading ultimately to the day of Passover, the day upon which he will be sacrificed. He will sacrifice himself for our sins. He makes his way through Samaria and then through Perea, which is the area east of the Jordan. And he goes through Jericho and he heals Bartimaeus and he will raise, or excuse me, uh, save Zacchaeus. He arrives in Bethany where he will stay Friday night and Saturday. So we think of today as Sunday. So two nights ago he would have been in Bethany, spending the night with his friends there for the Sabbath and then Saturday night last night. There would have been a great feast thrown by Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Can you imagine reclining at table with someone who had just been raised from the dead, who didn't smell bad, as we rejoiced together what the Lord had done? What a feast it would have been. Mary comes in with a a pound, a Roman pound of pure nard, and she anoints Jesus' feet with her hair, much to the chagrin of Judas, who was looking to steal the money that it might be sold for. Imagine that feast, how this would have been the kind of last hurrah with friends before things began to really escalate. Never out of his control, but certainly the holy, the week that we call Holy Week was going to be a very busy one, one with great controversy, one that would end with the crowd saying, We have no king but Caesar. But Saturday night they rejoiced. But Sunday morning, the sun rose, and it was time to begin. The day we call Palm Sunday. Jesus gets out of bed and he sends two of his disciples into the village in front of them, which is probably uh, Bethphage. He tells them to go and to get a colt that he might ride upon it. Now you must understand that the Bethany itself is two miles from Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives from which he will ride is about a half mile in driving distance, if you go down Belleville and take a right and then take another right and go to uh, Jennings Park, that's, that's a half mile. That's not very far. For someone who has been walking around for three years proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, a half mile is nothing. It's not like suddenly Jesus had gotten tired. Something else is going on here. 
See, it was time for the king to arrive. And when the king arrived, he would arrive in a specific way as foretold by the Old Testament. We see this in Psalm 118, verse 26, which is paraphrased in our text. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Each year during the Old Testament time of the kings, the the king was rethroned. They went through the coronation process again. And and do you know how they did this? The, The king would get on a donkey and he would ride down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And Psalm 118 would be used as a coronation psalm or song, and the people would sing it and shout it from the rooftops. And here we see the king, the true king. And he has come and he is about to get on a donkey and ride down from the Mount of Olives a half mile down into Jerusalem. Not as one who is tired, but one who is here to bring his kingdom Each year, this ceremony would point ultimately to the true king who wouldn't have to be throned each year, but who would sit on his throne and rule with justice and righteousness for all the years to come. In Zechariah 9.9, which is referenced here as well, we read this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zion being Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here is the king, the true king, the Messiah, and he is bearing salvation because he is salvation himself. The Holy Spirit through the prophet Zechariah told of a day when Jerusalem could truly rejoice because the righteous and salvation-bearing Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the true king would come and make his entry. He wouldn't be riding a great war horse or a charger, but an animal associated, as many have noted, only with peace. So here the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the King of David, the Messiah, God Himself, the God-man Jesus, at the week of Passover nonetheless, He gathers His disciples and He tells two of them, go into the village in front of you and there you will find tied a colt. Take it for me and bring it that I might ride into Jerusalem. Jesus knows of this donkey. Um, It's a colt that's never been ridden before. As one commentator pointed out, just, just like Mary had never known a man and was used to carry the king of kings, just like his tomb had never been used before, so now this colt had never been ridden. It's possible that he knew about this colt by natural means, but it seems more likely from the chronology of events that he knew it from supernatural means, the same way he knew Zacchaeus' name. He anticipates the objection of the owners. Certainly if someone showed up in your front yard and stole your ride, you might be a little upset. And so he says, if the owners ask you, hey, why are you taking my donkey? He said, the Lord has need of it. So apparently these owners knew the Lord. Apparently they knew of him. Throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, God had provided for his son, for his travels and his disciples, uh, through women like uh, uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, through others who would um, provide a tomb for him upon his death. 
people had shown him hospitality, and now it is time that someone will provide for him a donkey that he might fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of the coming king, the coming Messiah. We don't know if these disciples were one of the twelve or not. They could have been. There was a pretty large crowd that had come to see him from Jerusalem uh, the night before. We we're told in John uh, that uh, the people who had heard of the raising of Lazarus came out to, out to Bethany to be part of the feast. We don't know who they were, but, but obviously they had faith because Jesus had just told them, hey, go steal that donkey for me. So they had faith and they went forward. And they went and untied the donkey and the owners did ask, why are you taking the donkey? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And apparently they didn't argue. Perhaps they followed. If they were disciples of Jesus, perhaps they followed. For they knew, okay, it's time for the Passover. We know the prophecies. And Jesus, whom we have never seen ride anything. There's nowhere else in the Gospels that I can remember that Jesus is uh, is accounted as riding an animal. Suddenly he's asking for a donkey to ride half a mile down in Jerusalem. Let's go see that. So the disciples, they take the, the donkey back. And they set Jesus Upon it. The same word we see that is used in the Good Samaritan when he set the injured man onto his donkey. And they put, as one commentator said, their long, thin, quadrangular robes on the colt so as to provide comfortable a seat as possible for Jesus. And the crowds followed suit. They threw their robes on the ground. They took palm branches. They threw them on their ground that the donkey might ride upon them. Everybody knows what's going on at this point. No one is surprised. No one is wondering what is Jesus proclaiming, what is Jesus claiming here. It is clear to them because they know the Old Testament prophecies. They know that the king will come. They know the, 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 uh, the rehearsal of the re-coronation of the kings of old. They know this is one who is claiming to be the Messiah. So others are coming out of Jerusalem. There, there are three crowds here in this text. It's kind of hard to tell from just this account, but if you, if you read the accounts together in harmony, there are three different crowds going on in this text. You have those who are coming with Jesus down the hill of Mount Olives into Jerusalem. Then you have those who are already in Jerusalem. Remember, this is uh, the, the week of Passover is coming up. And so pilgrims from all over the world have started coming to Jerusalem. Uh, some estimates say that during Passover, Jerusalem might have two million people there. They start coming out of Jerusalem. They've heard what's happened. Someone has gone before and said, hey, the Messiah is coming. And they meet him along the way. These different crowds have different expectations. Certainly the crowd that is following, following Jesus down or going before him down into Jerusalem, these would have contained his closest disciples. We're told that even they didn't fully understand what was going on, but they loved Jesus. They were crying out, according to our passage in verse 38, quoting Psalm 118 or paraphrasing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were praising the Lord for the mighty acts they had seen. Bartimaeus being healed. Lazarus being raised from the dead. And the coming of their king. But there were these other ones who were coming up out of Jerusalem. And and some of them perhaps were also disciples of Christ. But many others were just curious. Others were looking for a king who had come to drive out 
the Romans. This was their idea of what the Messiah would do. Their biggest problem in their eyes was that they were occupied by the Romans and they needed a great Messiah, a great king who would come and bring war against the Romans and and drive them out and make Israel a great kingdom again, a theocracy, a kingdom just of Jews and no one else. And here they expected was finally that king. And so they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. And here's the rub. The crowds were crying out for salvation. but They didn't know what they needed to be saved from. They were crying out for political salvation. But they needed spiritual salvation. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus during Holy Week doesn't live up to their expectations, suddenly on that Friday morning when they're gathered around and they say, we have no king but Caesar. Because he is not the kind of king they wanted. There's a third group. They're the ones that will agitate the crowd to say that. And we see in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teach or rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were opposed to him. They didn't think that a man from Nazareth, a, a Galilean, an untrained traveling rabbi, someone who would associate with sinners and a poor carpenter could possibly be the Messiah. But they failed to believe what we find in this great text of the, of the healing um, or the saving of, uh, of, of Zac- uh, Zacchaeus. We read in, in 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. There are a lot of reactions going on in that crowd that morning. What, what's your reaction to the king? He is king. There's nothing you can do about that. He is king. He created all things. By the word of his power, he upholds the universe, according to Hebrews. John 1 tells us that he's the one who created the world. He rules and reigns over all things. And one day he's coming back, and and he is king. What has been your reaction to him? There's some here this morning who need to be reminded that the king is still in charge. He is still in charge. That no matter when the world looks upside down... The king is still in charge. There are others here this morning that need to be reminded that that the king loves you. Psalm 118, this this, this great psalm, says that the Lord is on your side. Therefore, who can be against you? The king loves you. We know that because the king came and and he came as king to die for you. There are others here though that need to submit to the king in salvation. And there are others who need to do what the king says and stop running from him. Because see, the thing is, we need a king like Jesus. We need a king like Jesus. Because see, while the crowds were crying out Hosanna, and many, perhaps most, were crying out for a physical salvation, save us, Lord. The greatest enemy, our greatest problem... Our greatest problem is not a low bank account. 
a bad diagnosis, an errant child, or a bad job. Our biggest need is that we really do deserve to go to hell because we are sinners. And the King has come to save us. Christ came to establish His kingdom, but it wasn't yet an earthly one. It was a spiritual one. One that would include both Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, powerful and weak, the young and the old. Indeed, he would answer the cries of Hosanna, save us, but he wouldn't do it by kicking Pilate out of the palace on Good Friday. He would do it by being kicked by the guards. He wouldn't do it by receiving a crown of gold on his head, but a crown of thorns. He wouldn't do it by nailing a proclamation of his kingdom upon every uh, local post. He would do it by being nailed to the cross. He wouldn't do it by wearing the robe of a king, but by being stripped naked. He wouldn't do it by slaying thousands, but would be slain that he might save myriads. This is our king, and he is a good king, and he is a gracious king. Because like, unlike any other king, he came and he died for those in rebellion against him. Romans 8 says that we are his enemies, and yet Jesus has taken the penalty for you and me that we might call him King Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the coming of our King. Father, for those who don't know You, may today be the day of their salvation. For those who need to be reminded that You love them, may they know Your love even more today. To those, Lord, who need to be reminded that You are still in charge and in control of a a world that seems upside down, Lord, comfort their hearts. Lord, we yearn for the day of the King's return his triumphant return in which he makes all things new and we see our Savior with our own eyes. So we pray, come King Jesus, come quickly. Amen.